Hello and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. What's going on? My COVID friend who basically had to move in with me when we both learned we had COVID has moved out. And so <laughs> I'm feeling a little lonely. Abandoned? Lonely? Abandoned. I was actually talking about this with someone yesterday. It must be incredibly hard to be single or to have been like living alone, at least during the last 12 months. It's like there's really nothing you can do with other people. I love it. <laughs> really? Have you yeah. been okay the whole time? The whole time. I've never been happier. What's gotten you through? Just I enjoy my own company. I, there's no one else I'd rather hang out with. <laughs> but aren't you like sick of like, I can't even watch TV anymore. I don't watch TV. What do you do? I have hobbies. Like what? I organize what? my drawers and I have started embroidering again. I sound like a grandma. Um, I watch basketball games. Okay. Mostly organizing drawers. I know, but like how many drawers do you have? That, a lot. That couldn't have taken 12 months. I also am starting a company. Did I tell you that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's taken up. <laughs> yes, got it. That's taken up a chunk of time too. Uh -huh. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about something? Speaking about time management Let's and time spent. Mm -hmm. I'm here. I'm having a child in 13 days. A human child. A human child. Oh wow! This isn't a yeah. metaphor. No. Well, tell me about it. <sighs> it's really weird. It's just very weird to think that. It'll never be just, I mean, I guess this is what all new parents probably think about, but it just the notion that it'll never be just us again. Yeah. You know, it'll never be like Casey and me as a couple. It'll be this family. I also just want to say for new people coming in, because we have a really incredible guest today. Yes. So if people are coming in, just listen to her. And this is the first time they're getting to know me and you. We're joking. I'm joking. We have known about this baby. For yeah, this is not an episode of I didn't know I was pregnant. And I just want to say, if you guys are half as good of daddies as you are friends, this baby is very lucky. That is so sweet. I mean, I guess we're kind of rehashing a lot, assuming that a lot of people are going to be coming to this podcast for the first time. But we did have to transform Annie's former guest bedroom in our apartment into the baby's nursery. Mm -hmm. That was a tough pill for you to swallow. One of the only tough pills that you probably swallow, right? Uh, no, I uh, swallow a lot of pills. No, no, but they go down pretty easy. Vivance. Uh, well, I'm on the chewable Vivance. I'm on a children's dose. <laughs> it is coated in sugar. Vivance is the best. So I have had been diagnosed with ADHD, primarily inattentive type, since I was 18. Mm -hmm. I'm listening. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. I wasn't paying attention. I was distracted. <laughs> I was just talking about my disability. Um, anyway, long story short, I have been on various medications to help with my ADHD since I was young. And have just recently come upon Vivance, and I would like to be a spokesperson for Vivance. It really helps, and it helps all day, and it makes me feel normal but super productive. One of the interesting things about Vivance is, unlike other stimulants, Vivance actually can't really be abused. You can't crush it and snort it. It only works in your stomach versus in your bloodstream. This is news to me. Do people crush up their pills and snort it? I've heard horror stories of people doing that. These but anyway, monsters. Vivance should sponsor this podcast. <laughs> now let's take a break. 
Our friends at Shire LLC, <laughs> makers Vyvanse. of Vivance, would like to wish all of our new readers a productive day. Vyvanse. Exactly. Anyway, so baby's coming. You're alone again. Big changes afoot. And we're just happy to, to have this this time together on Eyewitness Beauty. In fact, like I've been getting some really nice DMs from readers with some parenting advice or gear advice, and I love it all. Keep it coming. I love a piece of unsolicited advice. Oh my God, don't say that. Because the moment you put that baby on a on a pool float by itself and push it into the pool and then go inside nope. to record this podcast, people are going to nope, be up nope, in nope. arms. Oh, well, actually, that's an interesting point. And, you know, mark my words, but we are not going to put the baby on social media. I, I feel like I'm it's okay just like that. it would be too weird to grow up with your face and likeness on social media that you didn't agree to. I, I feel weird about that as a fully grown adult. <laughs> yeah, do, it's, it's complicated. Really. And I just think like there are kids that are going to grow up where like their entire lives and embarrassing pictures. Imagine like all of your embarrassing pictures being on the internet. Well, I don't have like, any embarrassing, but go on. So that's our plan. Let's cool. do top stories. Let's do it. So there's this group that is a probably the biggest market research company, especially in the luxury goods world called NPD, which actually stands for National Purchase Diary Panel. But basically, it's a market research company. And they, for a very high fee, provide corporations and publications with data about consumer habits and top selling products in all sorts of categories. So they have just released their 2020 data. And among other things, it revealed what I thought was sort of an interesting trend in the skincare space. And this was as reported in Women's Wear Daily. What they're finding at MPD is that clinical brands became the largest type of skincare brand in terms of sales, overtaking natural. So meaning clinical as exemplified by like IS clinicals or The Ordinary or any brand that's sort of focused on this idea of like tech or science. Ingredients, efficacy. Yes, all that sort of stuff is, is overtaking this idea of natural, organic green, all of that. And not to beat a dead horse, right? But these are just like marketing categories. It's not like anybody's going around and saying like this brand squarely fits in the clinical category because it meets this set of regulated criteria. No, they're just looking at the brands that are winning and sort of trying to deduce what connects them. One thing I thought was interesting that a rep from MPD told Women's Wear Daily was that clinical brands have always had a higher penetration of sales in the e-commerce world because, you know, as a technical category, you might want to be doing more research to learn about the products. So given that in 2020, everyone did all of their beauty shopping online, the clinical category, which already was sort of better represented online, stood to benefit. So I thought that was sort of interesting, you know, because you're you're already getting someone who's interested in data and science and research who believes that the claims that a clinical brand would have would be more interesting than natural stuff. So I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. Also, right on theme with our conversation with Paula coming up. Also, the headline from this NPD report was that prestige beauty sales overall dropped 19% in 2020. They lost $3.8 billion from last year. That's mostly like color cosmetics, makeup. Yep. Lip is the lowest selling category in makeup. That took the biggest hit. You can thank Dr. Fauci for that one. Two masks, no lip gloss. 
You know what I say? I say the devil works hard, but IMG works harder. Announced today, the global fashion and beauty agency representing everyone from, honestly, like name a person, they probably represent them. Giselle is represented by IMG. Kamala Harris's stepdaughter, Ella Emhoff, IMG. Everyone, IMG. Nick's baby. Yeah, she's already signed by IMG. They just looked at the ultrasound. They were like, we need that face. Natalia Bryant, who is Kobe Bryant's 18-year-old daughter, just signed with the agency. You know, So this just means like to expect them to be putting her in front rows when there are front rows of shows. Also, any kind of fashion or multimedia campaigns are definitely going to be dominated by IMG, their roster. So this is good for Natalia Bryant. Online, on Instagram, on other podcasts that are listened to, Twitter, people are kind of poking fun at the fact that IMG is signing all these quote-unquote models that are not models to their board. But uh, as we've seen on the industry, the industry has been going towards, again, air quotes, real girls for a while now, or real, again, air quotes, models, not the Eastern European Eurocentric 18 feet tall, like super skinny, traditional model types anymore. It does seem weird that Ella Imhoff and Amanda Gorman, who is a, the a poet. poet, not that she's not beautiful, not that they're both not beautiful, but they are not the traditional model look. And they also don't have the traditional model like career. But as we've seen, these brands left and right are snatching, you know, interesting people up just from sliding into their DMs on Instagram. And so if you have the kind of personal brand that these young women embody because of their families or because of their very quickly growing star power. They kind of do need the big guns behind them like an IMG. Otherwise, it's really easy to get like taken advantage of or just, you know, miss out on better opportunities if you don't have the type of like team and expertise around you to say like, hey, this deal is not good. You should pass on it or you should ask for more money or you should look at usage rights or blah, 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 blah. What's kind of interesting that I'm just realizing about this is so in Hollywood, traditionally with talent, there are talent agents and then there are talent managers. So your manager is someone who you're with usually through your whole career. Who Isn't really that has like your, your high school best friend? I mean, like that's the entourage. E, yeah, the entourage <laughs> version of it. But generally, like the agent is the one who's like really just like bringing you deals. They're just like, it's about deal flow, right? They're like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And you and your manager are the ones who are like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Anyway, the commission structure with managers and agents in Hollywood is 10% goes to your agent, 10% goes to your manager, and I believe 5% goes to your lawyer. So that's like the 25% of your salary that would go to your representation. However, in modeling, it's you know notorious for having they'll be your fee and then they'll they'll say like okay you want to book a model she's x number of dollars per day plus 20% agency fee so it's 20% of their fee on top of their fee is how much you would pay the agency to work with that model on the back end it's it's long been rumored that agencies will also take a 20% cut of the actual model's fee before they distribute the funds to the model so they're actually getting 40% so what I think is kind of interesting here is that IMG as a traditionally a modeling agency is getting a bigger cut than if these people had been represented by like traditional agents who would have taken 
So I wonder why would these super high profile people be going to a modeling agency and giving away potentially more of their earnings than going with like an agent at UTA or, you know, something like that who would be taking less. IMG is owned by WME, which is the top. Right. But I guess I'm wondering, and I really don't know how that affects the commission structure because 20% is a lot. And 10% is half. Yeah, but you just said, like, there isn't it a one-stop shop now if they're repped by IMG? Like, they don't have a manager and then also an agent I don't and know. also a lawyer. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah, I don't know. Anyone who who has any insight in that, let us know. I have a question. Yeah. Oh, but hold on. Can I actually, before your question, breaking news, fact check, Giselle Bunchen two days ago, announced that she was leaving IMG Models after 22 years. She decided to take her representation in-house and guess who her new agent is going to be? Her twin sister, Patricia. That's the breaking news. There's Mm -hmm. another Giselle Bunchen out there and her name is Patricia. Imagine being Giselle Bunchen's twin. That's a tough road to hoe. Okay, can I ask, this is going to be my question. You know who's really, after all this like, the shit model management, me too, that's been happening in the modeling and fashion industry. You know who's really looking like a bad guy here? I'd say a bad guy because there's a lot of bad actors here, you know, chiefly being the rapists and abusers, but the modeling agencies, like what the hell? In all these stories, it's like the agent sent them on to this shady party, to this shady photo- Yeah, in a, in a funny way, they've also, they've eluded the culpability. Uh, explain what you mean by that. I mean that the agents are complicit in setting up the meeting, so to speak, between agent and photographer for knowing information, certainly knowing information and withholding it from their client who is then sent to go meet with someone who's a creep. But then there's also the financial abuse that's happening to where they're, like you said, they're taking uh, bigger cuts out of what the model should be Allegedly. 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 But I do know for a fact that they're also like charging out the ass for lodging for up and coming models. Comp cards, all that stuff. Yeah. So this week there has been a woman who has captured the hearts and minds and certainly the eyeballs of everyone on the internet. And that person's name is Tessica Brown, also known as Gorilla Glue Girl. And she had the unfortunate experience of running out of her usual got-to-be-glued hairspray, which is not a glue, it's a hairspray. She had run out of her can of it, and she was running out. She decided to use a Gorilla Glue adhesive spray instead. She wears her hair super, super flat. And TLDR, do not use Gorilla Glue on your hair, on your head. She went to the emergency room. She washed it 15 times. She tried all these oils and abrasive liquids and substances to try to get this glue out of her hair. Ultimately, a uh, plastic surgeon offered to perform a pretty intensive procedure under a light anesthetic for free for her and was able to successfully remove the substance from her hair. She's now a social media celebrity, which I guess is the upside. Gorilla Glue is making headlines, which I can't remember the last time that happened, but they did say that they are, quote, Glad that Miss Brown was able to be treated, and we hope that she was doing well, according to a Gorilla Glue spokesperson. Shout out to Dr. Michael Obing, who yeah. is the Beverly Hills plastic surgeon who flew Miss Brown out for this procedure. It took four hours. 
four hours. He had her all hooked up to what looks like some pretty relaxing gases. <laughs> One time when I was like five, I took an entire jar of Vaseline and put it in my hair. What were you trying to slip into? I don't <laughs> a very, very small hole. No, it was like around Halloween and I don't know. I thought it'd be cool. Anyway, long story short, don't do that either. You know, basically it's just about not using things that aren't for your hair in your hair. Next story. So we have another creative director appointment, Drew Barrymore. You may remember her from she was a little blonde girl in ET. I think I do. Yeah. She rings a bell. She finally got another job. She is the creative director at Garnier. Oh my God. Interesting. She's like killing it. I feel like quarantine has been very good to her. She has her TV show, which seems to always have like viral clips. She has Flower Beauty, which is exclusively sold at Walmart, I believe. That brand has been around since I've been a beauty editor. Yeah. It's still chugging. And now she is the creative director of a global hair company. And the official eyewitness critique of celebrity creative directors is what do they do? It's yeah. a vanity title, right? And it just seems weird to us. You said it best, Nick. Your insight was that it feels as though they're trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the public. Like they think we're stupid enough to think that like it's not them just being paid to hawk a product. A, a spokesperson. That some, yeah. Well, it's that okay. it's like this new trickier way of saying that they're like – being paid by the brand to like be the face of it. Do you think this gets them around the FTC? Like hashtag ad? Funny you should say that because I saw Emily Ratajkowski yesterday or two days ago posting about Loops Beauty, which is her brand that she's a creative director of. And not her brand, not her brand. No, not her brand. Yeah. And she had to say it said in partnership with Loops Beauty on Instagram. So I think you do have to disclose it. Okay. So is the only reason just uh, like we're trying to editorialize this partnership a little bit more? Yeah. I think it's capitalizing on consumers' interest as well in sort of like how brands work and, you know, behind the curtain. And it's like now stylists are celebrities, creative directors are now, it's like a thing that people, the consumer knows what that is. And so I think they're like, oh, like that's what we can call them. And that's a way to sort of like model modernize our brand and make it relevant. What a weird time that we're living in where there's so much access to everything. Anything that you could ever be curious about, you have access to on the internet. And because certain brands have had a lot of success with showing who is working on them and who's behind them and social media is so prevalent, every brand in order to be successful kind of has to have this quote unquote authentic behind the scenes content. Yeah. And so these brands are, instead of just like maybe pulling back the curtain and actually showing who's working on them, are appointing these, you know, interesting, cool like celebrities to do that. And I'm not saying that it isn't because they have interesting, cool people behind the scenes, but it's just kind of, to me, it makes me more curious about, well, who is actually working on this? There is a new device on the market and also in reference to our conversation with Michelle Lee about, you know, the future of beauty being around beauty tech. It's called the droplet. And it's basically, it looks kind of like a Clarisonic, like a swollen Clarisonic. And it's a machine powered sprayer that sprays a mist of these little capsules that have active skincare ingredients in them onto your face. And what it's creators who are both MIT trained PhDs in related fields basically say that the super fine mist of the product over your skin actually allows the active to penetrate 20 layers deep 
which is obviously deeper, or I guess theoretically deeper than you know applying a serum with your hand. It's called the droplet. It's $299. And you buy these cartridges that you plop into the machine and then it sprays on your face. And they got investment from NASA. Ugh, I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. <laughs> I don't know. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> the molecule size doesn't change because you put it in a mist. So act as penetrating your skin deeper. It's not like this thing is like you're not putting hyaluronic acid in like an atom splitter and like it suddenly is able to like go even deeper in your skin. Honestly, no offense to you, Annie. I love you dearly. I'm going to take it from MIT PhDs that something does happen with the molecule. Like they can't just be lying. They are legit. I'm looking at a picture of them. They are (laughs) two people who did go to MIT and have PhDs in, um, I can even tell you what they have it in. Therapeutics designer Madhavi Gavini and medical diagnostics developer Rathi Srinivas always dreamed of making an impact. They were at a medical conference. They started to build this machine called the Droplet. Can you link me to the article here? I just let's caveat all this. I haven't read the article. I haven't looked at any studies that maybe. But she done. has an opinion. Of course, because I develop <laughs> skincare products. What are you talking about? Yeah. Of course, I have an opinion. Um, no, I've been I know. Doing this for 10 As years. well, you should. I know. Okay. But what I'm saying is, you're suspicious, which is fine. Also, Nick, I'm reading this article. There's nothing in here. There's no evidence to support what, at least how you've described it, that it actually penetrates the skin better. It says that they've worked with physicians, drug delivery experts, and quote unquote end users. It's gone through, the device has gone through dozens of iterations so we could get the form factor, the feel, and the efficacy perfectly right. Look, I'm not buying it. Again, the worst part for me is that you have to, every time you use the product, you have to put in a new capsule, which are these like plastic pods. So every time that you want to like put on a skincare product and use this device, which I'm guessing is what twice a day, you take out like a small tampon size piece of plastic, which contains the amount of product that you're supposed to apply and you throw it away at the end. It just seems like incredibly wasteful and I think that their original mission of trying to help people with serious skin diseases and developing technology around that is great. I think that like creating a consumer product that is creating a ton of unnecessary waste to not fix so an issue that is not really an issue is not the answer. I get it. Sorry. So that's top stories, leaving top stories with a bang. Annie, do you want to introduce our guest for this week? I would love to. So today on the podcast, we have, I don't think that we're over-exaggerating. Well, I know that we're not over-exaggerating here. She's transformed the beauty industry in major, major, major ways. And also just like an e-com industry too. I think like yeah. a lot of brands get a lot of credit for doing what she pioneered from the start. We have Paula Begon from Paula's Choice. A brand that I'm sure everyone listening has had on and inside of their pores at least once or twice in their lives. The 2% BHA Skin Perfecting Toner is my, air quotes, holy grail product. Everyone, whenever my skin looks great, they want to know what I use. They want to know my skincare routine. It's pretty much that and a 
carousel of other products, but that is a product that I actually buy over and over again. What we realized too in talking with Paula is that not only did she pioneer actives in beauty products and this idea of like having a toner that was quote unquote 2% BHA, but she also, she started selling beauty products on the internet in 1995 and it was direct to consumer. She didn't have retailers. So she was the first beauty direct to consumer brand. She formed a community online. They informed the product development, like everything that, you know, you see. All and these it was mal- content and commerce. Exactly. All these D to C brands that are getting a lot of credit for this uh, credit that I've given myself over the years too. It's stuff <laughs> Turns that, out she, it was Paula. Paula did it first. She even, yeah. you know, she beat us to freaking podcasting. She had a radio show. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's really, and she's so. And humble. she created Beautypedia, which is, I mean, we're just like, we're freaking we're out. We're talking at this over point. <laughs> But it's true. She created Beautypedia.com, which was the companion website to Paula's Choice, which was a website where she reviewed, she and her staff reviewed products outside of the Paula's Choice universe. So basically every single product and would back their opinions with peer-reviewed research on the ingredients or the claims. They get credit for being one of the first brands to recommend other products besides their own. And, you know, Glossier, we would post other products in our photos. And like, we got a lot of credit for that <laughs> as being Paula one of the first. first. She did it first. It's so insane. And she, I don't even think she realizes how much of an impact that she's had. I think at the end of the conversation, I mentioned, you know, if you Google Polish Choice, we were doing a little bit of fresh research on her before the show. If you Google Polish Choice and look at the news stories, the most recent ones right now are about how they're the biggest beauty brand on TikTok. And she had no idea. It's just insane. I think it all goes back to just her products being so efficacious and her being so formula focused and so results. And reasonably priced. You know what? We could go on and on, but we'll let the interview speak for itself, kind of. Paula, thank you so much for joining us today. We were kind of freaking out to talk to you. We're still freaking out. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a little freaked out, but not because I'm talking to me. (laughs) What? Why? What would make? Why? Because literally everything happening in skincare today, which we've talked about several times on the podcast, is now like the biggest category in all of beauty, I think can all be traced back to you. You've done it all. Okay, I'd be nervous too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's quite a legacy. It's, you know, some of it is I've just been around so friggin' long. You know, I've been doing this research and writing and myth busting and being a critic of the industry and a lover of the industry for over 40 years. I mean, I'm 67. I started doing it when I was in my 20s. I mean, it's just been a very long relationship. So maybe it starts with me because no one else alive is still, (laughs) I'm teasing. I, I don't know, but I definitely have some longevity there. It's not just you've been doing it long. I mean, you've been on the forefront of just being on the internet and being a beauty person on the internet and using that as a platform, not just for marketing purposes, but for all the things that you just mentioned, being a critic, being a lover and starting conversations. I was definitely the first cosmetic company with content, really the first cosmetic company to be on the internet. We started in 1995 and pretty much are still primarily an internet company. And just to be clear, people often, you know, think I'm such a visionary to have started on the internet before anybody knew the word internet or anybody knew the word web or any of those acronyms. And 
the truth is, is that I went on the internet at the time because I didn't want to be Estee Lauder. I didn't want to be L'Oreal. I I didn't want to be master of the cosmetics universe. I wanted to do what I loved. And as a small business person who didn't want to take my energy from research and formulary to distribution and operations, and I mean, there was already enough business stuff to have to deal with, but to have to deal with stocking stores and products and dealing with the department stores, that just felt like death. It isn't what I loved. It still isn't what I love. I don't, I mean, I got big enough where other people do that. What I can focus on is ultimately what I find the most fascinating about what I do. So yeah, I wasn't a visionary. I just, you know, I could sell products, didn't have to be a lot, and I could have the information there. And what was always and still is so magnificent about the internet is when information changes and it changes, the research is stunning in its abundance about what we now know about skincare. But then I could get it up on the internet like that. And because I didn't have millions of dollars of inventory sitting at department stores or uh, drugstores that I would have to go through, I can also change formularies fairly rapidly. So again, I don't think I was such a visionary. I just wanted an easier way to do what I love. The internet also became a way to make sure that that the veracity was there. I didn't have to worry that the information would get skewed because it's very easy to get misled. There's so much information out there. There's so much crazy information out there. It's very easy for the facts to get skewed. And I don't have to worry about it on my website. I don't have to worry about it on my pack. You know, I'm Paula, Paula's Choice. I don't have to worry about it. That's a pleasure. So what was it like marketing these products at the time then? Because this was before social media. But I re- thought I remembered a story about you before. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the first two to kind of engage with people online and forums and chat rooms and things like that. So how did you find your people online and how did people find your products? I'm going to sound like a really pathetic skincare company owner. I had already had a following from my books. Right. And we had a newsletter. And we did question and answer forums with these people. So I had a little bit of a built-in audience. And I did not actively go after marketing. You know, I didn't do advertising. You know, back in the day, search wasn't quite as tricky as it is now. Search was really search. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were, I know that there were meta tags were used a little bit more. I kind of remember what that term means, but mostly it was just really traditional search and the fan base I had already had from the books I sold. So it wasn't quite the active marketing that you think of that cosmetic companies do and and that we do now. You also self-published your books, correct? Yeah. I'm really kind of a grassroots kind of business person. That I became a big company is still kind of shocking to me, but it wasn't the goal at the time. It just wasn't the goal at the time. So we really grew very, very grassroots, very, very grassroots. It's just so, I don't mean to be 
annoying, but like, it's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so cool that you not only did you go onto the internet in 1995 and decide to sell skincare on the internet, you also were the really the first to this I, the the blend of content and commerce, which is now a buzzword, and now how you have to pitch yourself as a brand to get investment from seed investors. But the fact that you just never took these traditional routes, like the measure of success for you, wasn't getting a book deal. It wasn't you know no. getting into Neiman Marcus Nordstrom's, or, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like so or what, Walgreens or somewhere, right? Exactly. How are you wired that those were not considered markers of success? I recognize that for a lot of companies, that is the way to be successful, because what is most important, especially when you have investors, is the bottom line. And all I really cared about was paying my rent (laughs) and being able to run my company and pay my employees. And the bottom line for me was the creation of what I still think are some of the best products you're going to find. And backed by what the science says is possible for skin and also do my books and travel and get to know the world of beauty, really know the world of beauty. And that was my personal measure of success. And it was one of the things about being a sole proprietor. You know, I didn't have partners to argue with. I mean, you know, the buck stopped here, you know, with me, literally. And in fact, one of the decisions to finally get investors was we had grown to the point where there were some, well, there were many, after you have so many employees, there are legal things you have to comply with that make running a company even more complicated. And so I literally had to make the decision to take on people who can help run my company not just I'm the boss and I tell them what to do, but they're invested literally and figuratively to make the company run better or make my company grow smaller mm-hmm. because I couldn't manage it. Like I wouldn't hire me to be a CEO. I'm no CEO and I'm the CEO of a growing company. I mean, I needed to get out of that role and I wanted my company to grow, you know, as we took on other countries and expanded our reach, that just was wonderful. So I think it's more that the definition of success was not about money. I have been very successful. I I still find it astounding, but it was never the goal. It's it's still a surprise. It's still like, really, that's me? So can I kind of get into your head a little bit? Because you're talking about, all right, you don't want to do the admin stuff. You don't even see yourself as CEO. What you love doing is the formula and the research. And I think it's funny because a lot of armchair skincare experts, which the world is full of them now, as you know, a lot of them are fans of yours. And I've worked in product development for brands. A lot of the first places that people on my teams look for ingredient info, product info is Beautypedia, which is your website, or they want to see what you have to say about the ingredient first. So getting into your head, can you kind of walk us through your process when you're researching a new ingredient? I know you're all about like peer-reviewed studies. What do you look for in terms of evidence that you find credible when it comes to a a formula or an ingredient? It's multi-layered. It's really multi-layered. But at the core is we're just always, I'm just always, at least an hour to two hours every day, and sometimes longer when we're in the midst of 
an actual formula, just looking at the research. And the research isn't just about the ingredient as it relates to dermatology or as it relates to skin or skin physiology, but then it's the offshoots where you go when you're looking at research for a particular ingredient, because sometimes what comes up is the world of biology, chemistry, cancer research, the layers of research you branch off into. So sometimes you get validity about an ingredient, not just from dermatology or skin physiology or skincare research, but also from these other branches of study that sometimes look at a particular ingredient. So a lot of research is about skin physiology. So that's a little separate from dermatology where you're looking at what happens to skin because of sun damage, because of pollution damage, because of inflammation in general. So then there is this whole area of study that looks at something called exposome factors. And so that branches into everything around reducing inflammation. I mean, the number of journals that have sprung up over the past 15 years is mind-boggling. There's a whole area of research just called inflammation. And that is a huge area of where skincare ingredients, particularly the range of antioxidants and natural extracts and lab-engineered ingredients that are known for reducing inflammation. So that is an area of study that is outside. I mean, it's it relates to dermatology, but it's outside of, I mean, dermatology picks up on it and it's not that that isn't being done, but it's not quite like it's being done. It touches so many fields of science and, and research. You know, that's when you're looking at ingredients and things that impact the skin. And now it's pretty clear that the a lot of ingredients impact skin. And because they reduce inflammation, that is a primary focus of everything we do at Paula's Choice, that that benefits the body overall. It's really kind of amazing what they call cell communication or pathway communication, that when you tell the skin to ignore or reduce or impede the cascade event of inflammation, it improves body health. That's really cool. (laughs) So CBD has been a really popular topic of conversation for the past couple of years. And I guess like the biggest obstacle there for someone that relies on scientific studies is that it's hindered. Actually, it's not as hindered as you would think. Really? Oh, yeah. It's actually kind of stunning. Now, not so much in terms of formulary. All of us who are doing CBD products I mean, if we're doing them right, we are basing it on a lot of theoretical modeling type of research because CBD is a cannabidiol, actually all of the cannabinoids that come from the cannabis plant. Yeah, you can make CBD synthetically and that's not bad. I don't don't have a judgment around that in terms of the research. CBD is effective. It will communicate to the skin, but The research shows that when you use something called broad spectrum CBD, or you use full spectrum CBD that includes a range of the cannabinoids, you get better results. So just to go down the research, the human body has its own cannabinoid system. It's called endocannabinoid. 
So the human body makes its own cannabinoids. So it is a major way that the body naturally can reduce inflammation. But again, because of age and sun damage and pollution damage, the endocannabinoid system doesn't work like it should, especially not for skin. So when you apply CBD, hopefully CBD that is full spectrum, it actually can find receptor sites on the skin cell and tell the skin cell to ignore the inflammation cascading around it. So CBD is not just a total joke. Oh, God. Oh, no, no. Well, I mean, I don't know if other companies are going to let go of it, but we're watching the legal issues around it very carefully because, again, one of the major aspects of almost all my products is reducing inflammation, mm-hmm. inflammaging, acne, rosacea. In fact, there really isn't a skin disorder that isn't either triggered or worsened because of inflammation, skin irritation. And CBD is just one of the many ways and one of the more potent ways that you can reduce inflammation. That's when we ran into that research. I actually started the research because I have arthritis. So I actually take, I'm not advocating people take CBD orally. I do take CBD orally. I'm in a state where marijuana is legal and they have medical stores that have high concentrations of CBD in the full spectrum range. And when I saw the difference in my arthritis and I was doing all this research, that's when I learned about the body having an endocannabinoid system. And arthritis is inflammation of the joints. So it all ties back to inflammation. Everything, everything, everything ties back to inflammation. If what you do in life, I know I sound like an old grandmother nagging about this, but if what you do doesn't reduce inflammation in your life, either for your skin topically or your diet, then everything else is for naught. Well, not totally for naught, but nowhere near as beneficial as paying attention to what it means to fight inflammation. So there is all this information that we're being bombarded with on a daily, hourly basis about this is inflammatory. Sugar is inflammatory. Sugar. sugar, uh, So sugar in all its forms, honey, raw sugar, fancy sugar, expensive, cheap sugar, whatever. Sugar, without question, is inflammatory. Hands down causes something called ages, advanced glycated end products or accelerated glycated end. It it destroys proteins and collagen. The saturated fats are inflammatory. Alcohol, for sure. Alcohol is not a health food. Yeah. One of the reasons plants are such a potent source of anti-inflammatory antioxidants is because they live outside in the sun and the air and the pollution, and they're still green and they're thriving. So they have in of themselves an incredible network of antioxidant properties and anti-inflammatory diet. There's definitely things it shouldn't include, and there's definitely things it should include. But even just the fact that there is all this sometimes confusing and disorienting information about all of these ingredients or even trends in specifically in skincare, you know, physical sunscreens versus chemical sunscreens. Chemical sunscreens are terrible for you. Physical is good. No, they're not. Yeah, exactly, right. No, yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> quite the kind. We're afraid of the wrong things. And I'm not quite sure why there is this movement 
to be afraid of ingredients versus what we should really be afraid of. It's the wrong focus. The sun is the most carcinogenic element on the planet, and it is the most pervasive and carcinogenic. That's what you need to be afraid of. Sunscreens is not something to be afraid of. That term endocrine disruptor drives people crazy, but so much of what we eat is endocrine disrupting and sometimes in a very good way, not in a bad way. If you endocrine disrupt cancer directing elements in the skin and reduce it, that's a good endocrine disruptor. I think people just need to stop being hysterical and stay focused on the research, the yeah. research, the real research, not the headlines, not just passing around the same hysterical information that doesn't help anybody. It's the same thing with the all natural organic craze. That doesn't help anybody's skin. Plants have limitations. Even for your health, plants have limitations. If you have a heart attack, eating a carrot isn't going to help you. You know, if you have liver damage, you need the science of lab engineered ingredients, antibiotics, the COVID vaccine, I mean, on and on. We live longer and we thrive as humans with the longer longevity than ever before in history because of the extra things we do outside of diet to keep us healthy, to keep us away from disease, to cure cancer, to reduce cancer. So so if you're okay, yeah. So okay, if you're sorry. if you're no no, I I'm into it. If you're a <laughs> conscious consumer, we're not even going to go down the clean beauty rabbit hole because I imagine that you have very strong feelings against the term. But if you're <laughs> say you're a conscious consumer, beauty consumer, you're like I want to make the right decisions for my skin. What products do I use on my face? What makeup do I use? What can you look at? What should you look for? Are there any terms or things that you can actually like believe and trust on the label that are like, okay, at least just look for the word organic. I'm making that up. But like, are there any things that like you can trust? Organic and natural is pretty misleading. Again, because when it comes to skincare, there is just so much you can't do with all natural. And a lot of all natural ingredients are bad for skin. The notion that if mm -hmm. it's all natural, it's good is a myth. It's a huge myth. There's lots of natural ingredients I don't want you putting anywhere near your face. But in terms of skincare, the limitation is pretty significant, especially for sunscreens. Some of the absolute best ingredients have to be lab engineered to keep them stable, to make sure that they can be utilized by skin. They have efficacy. They can't be natural or there is no natural counterpart. Right. I know they quite often, you know, there was that whole craze back when AHAs and BHA became popular, you know, that sugarcane extract worked like AHA because AHA can be derived from sugarcane. It's not. It never was, never could be, can't even vaguely perform like glycolic acid or lactic acid that is lab engineered or willow bark for a while extract was supposed to work like BHA, salicylic acid. It didn't. It was bizarre. I didn't suck on willow bark, you know, to get rid of menstrual cramps or, you know, my headache. That's why God made aspirin. There are no natural retinol products. There are no natural niacinamide products. There are no natural AHAs or BHAs. There's no natural sunscreens. You know, companies do what, what companies do. I that's why when you ask me what to look for, I don't know what to tell you in the sea, in the quagmire of cosmetic claims and 
the information that swirls around the internet. Maybe the better way then, the better approach to get some definitive answers from you is to play a game that Annie and I created called Paula's Choice. And we define a Paula's Choice as a almost impossible decision or choice between two different things. Oh, I'm so curious. What is this game? We are re, uh, rebranding Sophie's Choice as Paula's Choice in a much okay. more All uplifting right. frame of reference. Sophie's Choice was a great movie, yes. but it's depressing. Yeah, let's not depressing. depress anybody. Is, we're not doing that. We're going to give you two different either ingredients or products, and you're going to, you have to choose one or the other, and you can, you can plead your, your case, or you can okay. just put a period at the end of this. Sentence. Okay. All right. Do you want to start, Annie? Sure. I would love to. If you had to choose Paula's choice between jars, cosmetics put in a jar, or oh, you know the answer or added, to this, or, or added fragrance, I wouldn't choose either. But you have but you to. Have to. It's That's a the game. That, That's the then, game. Then it's a bad game. <laughs> let's see. Let's choose jumping off a building or jumping off a bridge. Hmm. Which do I want to choose? Jumping off a bridge or jumping off a building? What I'm saying, and I get the game, but what I'm saying to you is that I don't think it's ever necessary. There are so many good things out there. I don't think it's ever necessary to choose anything bad that doesn't help your skin. So I get the game, but I simply can't. They're they're both a problem. They don't take care of your skin. And my job is to help you, whether it's with Paula's Choice products or somebody else's is to take the best care of your skin. Jar packaging doesn't allow, you know, air sensitive and light sensitive, but mostly air sensitive ingredients stay stable. Well, then you're not putting the best ingredients on your face because they go away when you open the package. And then fragrance, whether it's essential oils or synthetic fragrance are volatile. They cause irritation. Irritation generates inflammation. Inflammation. And then you're damaging skin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can't decide between don't, that. Don't, I'm going to give, we're, we're, we're only. Oh, this right, is this this just is, the first one. Let's this go is to just the, the first one. one. Okay. Parabens or phenoxyethanol, both preservatives. I prefer parabens, but the insanity out there makes it almost impossible for me to use it. But parabens are by far the safest, most effective, least irritating of all preservatives. I don't even want to go down the road of why the insanity around what is said about parabens doesn't make sense. But the fact is when parabens absorb into skin, they actually stop being parabens. They turn into something else as they absorb through the layers of skin. They stop being parabens. They have a different structure that is benign and never mind. No, that's good news you can use. That's number one. Phenoxyethanol, I only recently heard about phenoxyethanol having concerns. I actually haven't looked at the issue. It just came up on my radar. So I don't know how to comment about it, yeah. but phenoxyethanol, it, you know, you're using it in a product in such trace amounts. I mean, the bacteria and fungus growing in your, in your product <laughs> is far more problematic for you than the trace amount of any preservative for that matter. Anything that kills effectively kills fungus, bacteria, and other contaminants, microbes. I'm realizing that I think that there's like a little bit of a misunderstanding online, at least from what I'm seeing around the hubbub around jars, which 
not hubbub is not the right word. I think it's completely, uh, it makes perfect sense why you wouldn't want to package something in a jar. But from what you just said, you're saying that it's more so because of the stability of certain ingredients that will be affected by air or become unstable. Correct. But I think a lot of the chatter online about why people don't like jars is because of you're introducing bacteria into the product. So you have to like load it up with more preservatives. Uh, preservatives. Or- I mean, that is true when there's water in a product and when you do stability testing for jars, yeah, it takes more because you are introduced separate from this, the air sensitivity issue for keeping the good ingredients stable. When you do put your fingers in, no matter how clean you think your fingers are, you are introducing microbes and they multiply and grow within the product. And that's problematic. And you do have to increase the amount of preservatives, which ends up being the more preservatives, even though they're effective in of themselves, right? They're killing things. They're killing bacteria. And the more you have to include the risk of irritation to skin. That was what was so great about parabens. They were already inherently not irritating Mm -hmm. and you could use so little of it because they were so incredibly broad spectrum. Mm. So yeah, that issue of jar packaging is true. You do want to keep your fingers out. It's not great to introduce microbes and bacteria and fungus and whatever into your product. Okay. Ready? La Mer or Augustinus Botter? Well, I don't know the second one. And I do know the first one, and I don't think it's necessary to spend that much money. What's the other one? Augustinus Botter is the one that is in the blue, sort of bluish purple long pump. And he's like made a splash. It's like $300 for the rich Oh, cream. no, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No. There you go. Is La Mer cheaper than his products? Or is that a man? The, they're, they're comparable. A guy? Yeah, he's a doctor. Is your reaction just that like nobody should be spending that much on a single product? There's no reason. I know the cost of ingredients. I know the cost of the best ingredients. I've been doing this, I'm fairly certain, longer than Dr. Augusta, as assuming he is doing the formularies. I know the price of ingredients. I know what it takes to put them together. I know what it takes to keep them stable. And I cannot imagine maybe there's a couple of ingredients you could consider for the price, but there are so many other brilliant ones that are less expensive. Why would you bother? You wouldn't get any more bang out of your buck. And bang out of your buck is the biggest deal when it comes to skincare or just about anything you do in life. In my old age, and even though I'm very blessed and I could afford a fancy ass car, I just bought a Sonata Hybrid. And I'm a happy girl. I see my life where I'm doing good things for myself, but it doesn't have to be pricey for me to feel good and confident and have self-esteem. And for certain, for skincare, it just physiologically doesn't make sense. Take that money you're going to waste on expensive skincare products, put it somewhere where it will earn even a little bit of interest or a little bit of you know growth. And when you're my age, you can, or whenever you want to start, you can start affording the things that skincare can't do. In other words, what I know, I mean, I know you're looking at me and you think this woman doesn't look 67. At least I hope that's what you're thinking. I look at myself and think I don't look 67, but I know what you look at me and appreciate about my skin. 
that is about Paula's choice and what I know about skincare. And I also know what you look at me and appreciate that it is about my plastic surgeon and about my cosmetic dermatologist. So when I think of all the money I see people wasting and often hurting their skin for no reason and no benefit when it could be, if you think forward as to what really can work together, you won't have to use your credit card. <laughs> Insider skincare people always say this. They say, I'm just going to get a mini facelift at 50 and a, this, you know, like it, that's what you spend the money on if you know, and it's not buying $300 cream from starting it when you're 20. No, it's ridiculous. Believe me, if expensive products made a difference somehow than lesser expensive products, like under a hundred, which I can't, I, I'm trying to think of a product I've ever run into in my 40 years of doing what I do as a critic of the industry, you know, with my books and Beautypedia and don't go to the cosmetics counter without me. I can't think of an expensive product over a hundred dollars that I have run into, especially not makeup that I think for one second is worth it. Okay. So then this is a good segue for the next question, which is Botox or filler. Why do you keep making me choose each one? <laughs> it's the, the nature of Paula's choice. So, I, I, so the real answer is both. But if I had to be forced, I probably wouldn't give up my Botox. But then again, when I had filler, I did do something a little more controversial because I used a permanent filler. I've had some touch-ups a couple of times, but... I did filler years and years and years and years and years and years ago, and it's it's just lasted because the nasal labial folds, the smile lines that go from your nose down to your mouth, the elevens can be improved between your brows with Botox, but often take a depending on how deep they are, often take a combination of fillers and Botox. There's just things that fillers can do that Botox can't and vice versa. But having a smooth, unlined forehead, I am not going back there. Oh, my God. And they now do some new techniques with Botox. It's called a Nefertiti. I don't know why it's called Nefertiti. I think that refers to an Egyptian goddess or queen or somebody. And it smooths out the jawline. I haven't looked into it. I just had the person who does my Botox suggested it. And I went, whoa, cool. Yeah, do it again. <laughs> and also the necklace lines, the banding, they're now doing some interesting techniques. So Botox actually, it still won't help with nasal labial folds. And I suggest women use it very carefully for around the mouth. I know that it can improve some of the lines around the mouth versus using fillers. But years ago, I did Botox around my mouth, and I thought I smiled like the Joker. It just, to me, it gave me a very flat smile. So I thank God it only lasted six months. That's about how long, four to six months, how long Botox lasts for most people. So it went away, but I wouldn't do it again. And the filler helps a lot. I mean, those are pretty damn good lips for not having done. Because one of the things that happens with age is you lose, well, mostly for Caucasians, not so much for people of color, but you lose lip volume. Yeah. Don't we know it? 
We have. Are you more. exhausted? No. I feel like I. You. Got, I don't know if I've disappointed you no, or no. You have no, not, not at um, all. I have like a million. It's. I'm. I'm like. I'm bummed because I know we're running out of time, but I have a million more questions. First of all, I think it's like going to be such a relief for women to hear that there is a limitation on skincare from you because I think there's so many over promises with skincare. I think when people are not able to quote unquote achieve the results that they want just through skincare and through investing in all of these trial and errors and and buying all these new products and more expensive products and still not seeing the results that they want. They think that there's something wrong with them. And then they have to try something else and they're not spending enough money. And then they buy jade rollers, which actually hurt (laughs) the skin. They massage the face, which hurts the skin. You see skin move. You are sagging it. Up or down, I don't care which, yeah, don't touch it either. Up or down, you are sagging your skin. The elastin fibers in skin that give skin its bounce, that allows skin to bounce back, is like rubber bands. There are a trillion of these little rubber bands in skin. And with, like, think about just a rubber band. Whether you pull it from the top or the bottom, you keep pulling on it. Gravity keeps pulling on it. You keep pulling on it. Sun damage weakens it. And eventually it breaks. It's like an old bathing suit, right? Exactly. It's like your breasts. You can massage your breasts from here to kingdom come. You can have a good time. And they ain't going up around your neck. I'm sold. If I, what I want to do, and I imagine readers or listeners rather will probably want to do too, go on to paulischoice.com and buy... Under $100 worth of product, what do I get? What are the greatest hits that are pretty universally effective? So here's the basic concept of skincare. I look at how young and adorable the two of you are. No, thank you. I'm 37. Oh, oh please. Only a 37-year-old would think that that's not a baby. <laughs> and Annie, how old are you, sweetheart? 31. Okay. She's babies, baby. babies, yeah, baby. not exactly diapers. So if you start adapting the good habits, not sunning, eating an antioxidant rich diet, not irritating the skin, not scrubbing it, not massaging it. If you stop the damage and you are good about how you take care of your skin and you don't have acne and you don't have rosacea and you don't have other skin disorders. From Paula's choice, I would point you to my defense line, assuming you don't have super dry skin or super oily skin. You're just trying to create a maintenance routine for yourself. That's why I developed that. It's got an incredible sunscreen that feels like nothing on the face and it's still a pure mineral by the way, just to be clear, I do have a preference personally for mineral-based zinc oxide, titanium dioxide-based sunscreens. They are not natural. They can't be natural to be in a sunscreen. They have to be processed in a way that they ain't natural anymore, but that's okay. I find them very effective and for me, just very low risk, well, no risk of irritation. So I prefer them. That doesn't mean synthetic sunscreens for a lot of people aren't incredibly effective but that we were able to come up with a lot. That's one of the things people complain about with pure mineral sunscreens is that they're heavy. This one is not heavy. Having said that, then you add in products based on what your skin is doing. If you have advanced sun damage, if you have enlarged pores, you're struggling with oily skin, 
then you look at products, uh, skin discolorations, you look at products like our boosters that have vitamin C, high concentrations, azelaic acid, niacinamide, especially my new niacinamide that I'm just thrilled about, and retinol, et cetera. So then you add in the higher concentration of ingredients because you're struggling with more advanced problems. And then, of course, acne is a whole other discussion. I always am strongly recommending that people pay attention to exfoliation that is gentle. And that's the world of AHAs and BHA because of how it affects the buildup of dead skin cells. Harsh scrubs can't do that. They, they simply can't. Loofahs, you, you got to be gentle. And they only reach the surface of skin, those kind of products anyway. They can't get to where the sticky built up layers of unhealthy skin are sitting. So I always ask people to consider that. It's one of the few product types in skincare when it's well-made that actually has an overnight difference. Because when you have built up layers of dead skin, it's not hydrated, it can look rough, the pores look clogged. This is my problem, this is what I have. You haven't tried the 2% BHA? Is that what I need to try? Yeah, I tell everyone, where have you been? Okay. okay. <laughs> People probably think I get like a kickback for probably the past we can like eight that years. Right now. Paula, are you giving her any money for that? Well, Annie, we can talk. So, <laughs> so, so here's my kickback, Nick. I'll make sure the people who set this up for us to talk get you a bottle of my 2% BHA liquid and you can see if Annie's right. It is the only product in Paula's choice I made for myself. And the company didn't want me to launch it back in how many years ago when I created it, because it has a bit of a slick texture that not everybody is nuts about, but it is so ridiculously effective. And in the United States, we have a BHA-9 that on bad blemishes, I mean, I don't want to make any over-the-top claims, so I'll just speak for me. Salicylic acid definitely works for acne, but our BHA-9 can take, a for me, overnight benefits sometimes for some of the bad blemishes I notoriously still get. Having had acne most of my life, I have been known to use it all over depending on what's happening for my skin. But generally, it works great as a spot treatment to those blemishes that just pop up, especially around your period. And for guys who don't break out as much after their 20s like women do, it's kind of an interesting statistic. Men break out more as teens and women break out equally in their teens. And then once they go over their 20s, mostly around menstrual cycle, hormonal shifts. So, yeah, the BHA-9 can come in real handy. Now is the time in the show where I, for the first time, live to tape, smell Dolly by Dolly Parton. I ordered... (laughs) The first day it was available, the tester size Eau de Parfum Dolly. If you all remember the episode where we talked about this, this was a Squarespace X Super Bowl X Dolly Parton X IMG production. (laughs) But I have 0.1 fluid ounces in front of me. I have not smelled it yet. This is our product of the week, I should say. My product of the week is this fragrance. Here's the, the romance language inside the card. Butterflies, hearts, and hope. True inspiration from rags to rhinestones. 
Dolly Parton spreads love and hope around the world. Now she introduces her signature fragrance where flower blossoms, rhinestone hearts, and playful butterflies transport us to a place where everything is possible. Open your heart to Dolly's new fragrance. Oh my God, rhinestones. What a, oh, she's so brilliant. Rags to rhinestones. That's one of my favorite songs of her. Uh, Everyone loves Jolene. I really like Code of Many Colors. Oh, Nick's smelling it. First impressions. I think we said, I think we had said last time we thought it was going to be powdery, floral, and sort of gourmandy. And I don't want to like pat myself on the back, but it's kind of all those things. It's a little juicier than powdery, I would say. There's definitely like blossoms. It's very sweet. It's very floral. It's not powdery and light, you know, like old lady kind of smelling. It's very inviting. And I don't even, I mean, I'm, I'm bad with notes, but like it's familiar. I wouldn't say it is taking an olfactory risk necessarily. I wouldn't say it smells like playful butterflies, but I do, um, I do get the top note of rhinestone. So what, like a metallic? Yeah. Like a Swarovski kind of, it's floral, it's juicy. It would smell really good if someone was wearing it in an elevator and then you got on after. It would just like smell delicious. Strawberries maybe? It kind of has like a strawberry kind of tutti fruity-esque vibe. You know women that just like Dolly herself just look soft, but they're very well put together. Like they're glam, but you can tell they're soft. You know what I'm Yeah, there's a softness to it. Yeah. Does it look like how those women smell? Yeah. It's easy. It's not complicated. I'd say fruity floral, which is kind of what I meant by juicy, I guess. And on the card, they use her like headshot from like a throwback headshot of her. Yep. You can use the promo code Dolly dollar sign 10 at checkout and receive $10 off your full size bottle of Dolly the fragrance. So I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to makeup. I realized just overall, I do prefer stuff that ends up being more expensive. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. And the one thing that I have trouble finding that the expensive ones don't work as well are makeup brushes. Interesting. Except for my beloved Hakuhodo ones that I've talked about on a previous episode, but those are more like the really tiny eye detailer brushes. Big, fluffy makeup brushes, uh, the expensive kind. I won't name names. I've tried them all. Really horrible. They shed. Why? Like what do they, they shed? They shed. That's the biggest issue is that they shed or they're rough. There's even a quote unquote legendary brush, you know, the most well-known luxury beauty makeup brands sells. It's like so rough on your skin. Anyway, it's hard for me to find a blush brush slash like face brush that I really like and I needed new blush brushes. And so I was like, you know what, what's the definition of crazy? Trying the same thing over and over again, expecting the same results. So I was like, let me buy an inexpensive brush. I see these like inexpensive synthetic brush brands all over Instagram. So I ordered Real Techniques brushes. I ordered the 405, which is kind of like a wedge shape, fluffy brush, and the 400, which is more of a... Like a puff. A puff. Right. It's not tapered. It's very round. And they're blush brushes, I think, is how they're both marketed. That's how I've been using them. The 405 is more of like a stiffer chisel shape that you can do like more of a contoured Kate Mossy type blush with. Nick is like falling asleep. Um, I'm taking pictures for Instagram. 
Nick, I'm not your baby. Please don't put me on Instagram. <laughs> the 400 is good for a more diffused blush look. So pick your poison. That is my product of the week. Synthetic. That's great. No animals harmed in the making of my blush look today. Where can you get these? I bought them on Ulta.com. Wait, let me tell you how much they are because you're going to lose your fucking mind. Oh my God. Guess what I paid for this? I didn't even realize that they were this cheap. How much? Well, guess. Come on. Let's have a little fun. $9.99. Okay, you're close. $9. $5. Wow. There you go. Come on. Just wow. That's yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. We're going to post them on Instagram so everyone can see them and take a look before they buy. I think that concludes this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty, and you can email us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamyn Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Presan. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode, and we will talk with you then. Bye. Happy Valentine's Day. You are loved. <laughs>